ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so moving along then in the description of the Prophet's prayer, the last thing that we spoke about was where the hands go after you come out of ruku'ah. And we spoke about that in a summarized way last time. And we mentioned the two opinions, either they stay down by your side or you bring them back up onto your chest. So then after that, now you've come out of Ruku'ah, the next stage is going to be to go down into prostration. Before doing so, as we said, when you come out of the Ruku'ah, you must get yourself in an upright standing position fully. Calm, standing, then after that you move down into sujood. Not like what people do, they come out of Ruku'ah straight down into sujood. You're supposed to come out of Ruku'ah, stop standing straight, be calm, then move down into sujood. And it's a big mistake, the people who rush through that part. Even some of the imams, you go to the mosques, straight up, by the time you're still coming, he's already going down into sujood. So you should give a bit of time in that part there. Come out of the Ruku'ah, stand, then go into sujood as the Prophet ﷺ used to do. So then in the sujood then, in fact, before we get to that, as Shaykh Al-Athameen mentions, أُشَاهِدُ مِنَ الْمُصَلِّينَ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ He says, I've seen people praying in Al-Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca. مَنْ إِذَا رَفَعُوا مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ رَفَعُوا أَيْدِيهِمْ رَفَعَ دُعَاءِ وَهَذَا أَخَذُوهُ مِنَ الْقُنُودِ فِي رَكَعَةِ الْأَخِيرَةِ لَكِنَّهُمْ لِقِيَاسِهِمْ الْفَاسِدَ وفي ركعة التي قبلها لكن هذا غلط ليس هناك رفع يدين بعد الركوع He says some people when they come out of ruku' they have this natural habit of doing this as well and then going down into sujood have the habit of putting their hands into the shape of making dua Sami'allahu liman hamida rabbana wa lakal hamd and then a dua position with their hands and then going down into sujood they used to like the qunut, for example. They are used to doing the qunut. So they do this after ruku' every time, and that's wrong. There's no such thing as making a dua, a dua position with your hands after the ruku', either down by your side or on your chest, and that's it. So then after that, you say the takbir, say the takbir, and you go down into the sujood. When do you say Allahu Akbar? When do you say that exactly? As Shaykh Al-Athameen says, in this instance, you don't have a choice. You don't, as the Shaykh says, you don't, for example, now you're standing, you don't say Allahu Akbar and then start moving. So you don't say the takbir before you start going down. Neither... Do you go down and then right at the last minute say Allahu Akbar? You're supposed to say it 
as you are going down, in the process of going down, لا يقول الله أكبر قبل ولا بعد وإنما يقولها إذا أهوى إلى السجود. So you don't say Allahu Akbar before you start moving down. You don't say it at the end when you're right down. You say it as you're going down. Allahu Akbar. And you're going down at the same time. Into sujood. Do you raise your hands or not? So now you said, Allahu liman hamida rabbana wa lakal hamd. Now you're going to say, Allahu Akbar, I'm going to sujood. Do you raise your hands on this one? Is it, Allahu Akbar, going into sujood from the standing, or no raising of the hands? Raising of the hands. So when you come out of ruku' Allahu liman hamida, do you raise your hands then? You raise your hands then. Then when you say Allahu Akbar to go into sujood, again raise your hands. In that one the shaykh says you don't. There are some narrations in Al-Bukhari from Abdullah ibn Umar that in that one going down into sujood now, you do not raise your hands when you say the takbir. After you finish the sujood, we're going to get to the details, but once you finish the sujood and you come up, you say Allahu Akbar to sit down. And then Allahu Akbar to go down again. In those ones, do you raise your hands when you're saying Allahu Akbar? There are some evidences for it. But here the Shaykh says no. A Shaykh al says no. There are some other scholars that do have evidences to say you can though. So, now there's an issue here. We have an issue here. You've come out of Rukur, you've said Allahu Akbar, and you're going down into prostration. How do you go down into prostration? Meaning, when you go down into prostration now, is it your hands that are going to touch down first? Or is it your knees? Which one? Hands? Difference of opinion. They say in fiqh, whenever you get asked the question, just say, there's a difference of opinion. <laughs> so, if there's a difference of opinion, what are the opinions and which one is the correct opinion? So there's a hadith that says, don't go down like the camel goes down. So how does the camel go down? Knees first. Okay, so now then let's have a look at this issue of how you go down, what makes contact first. Yes, there is a difference of opinion. Some scholars say it's your hands that are supposed to make contact first to the ground. Others they say no, it's your knees that are supposed to make contact first, then your hands. So which one is it? Let's have a look here now. وَلَا يُقَدِّمُهُمَا إِلَى الْأَرْضِ بَلْ يُخِرُّ عَلَى رُكْبَتَيْهِ ثُمَّ يَدَيْهِ ثُمَّ جَبْهَتِهِ وَأَنْفِهِ According to the opinion of a Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen, and we're going to mention both, but the opinion of a Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen is that you go down on your 
knees. That's the opinion of a Sheikh al that you go down on your knees first. But we're going to look at the difference of opinion. Other scholars have said it's your hands first. So, a Sheikh al says, according to his opinion, the first thing that gets down is your knees. Then your hands. Then your forehead. And finally, the nose. Finally, the nose. Because the Prophet ﷺ informed us when you prostrate, seven body parts are supposed to be touching the ground. In the sujood, seven body parts have to make contact with the ground. If they don't, your prostration is invalid. Unless you have some medical reason or other reason. What are the seven body parts that have to touch the ground in the sujood for it to be valid? Head and nose. Let's start with the easy ones. From the bottom, feet. That's two. Then moving along, two knees. That's four. Then moving along, two hands. That's six. What's the seventh body part? Face. All of the face or what? Forehead and nose. Forehead and nose. Which part of the nose? This is a big mistake people make. Forehead everybody knows. A lot of people touch their forehead and they touch the tip of their nose. It's supposed to be the forehead and the top of the nose. That top part of your face you put down onto the ground. The top of the nose is supposed to be touching. Not just the tip. So they are the seven body parts. That's a hadith. Umirtu an asjuda ala sab'ati a'zum. The Prophet ﷺ said, I have been commanded to prostrate upon seven body parts. But anyway, the issue so far is, which body part makes contact first? As Shaykh al like we said, his opinion is, it's the knees. And he's going to give some evidences now regarding that issue. He says, one evidence is a hadith that Abu Dawood narrates or reports from Wa'il ibn Hujar radiyallahu anhu, a companion. This companion says in this hadith, رَأَيْتُ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِذَا سَجَدَهُ وَضَعَهُ رُكْبَتَيْهِ قَبْلَ يَدَيْهِ Make note of these evidences as we go along. This is the first evidence. Hadith in Abu Dawood, Sunan Abi Dawood, where this companion says, radiyallahu anhu, I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. When he would prostrate, he would put his knees before his hands. Hadith in Abu Dawood. Second evidence, a hadith which is in An-Nasai, Sunan An-Nasai, and also actually in Abu Dawood as well. Hadith of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anhu, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِذَا سَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ 
When one of you prostrates, فَلَا يَبْرُكْ كَمَا يَبْرُكُ الْبَعِيرِ Then do not go down as a camel goes down. وَلْيَضَعْ يَدَيْهِ قَبْلَ رُكْبَتَيْهِ And put down the hands before the knees. So this evidence seems to be telling us the complete opposite of the first evidence. The first evidence, the companion said, I saw the Prophet putting down his knees first. The second evidence, the Prophet said, don't go down like a camel goes down. Put down your hands first. So now two hadith, both of them apparently telling us the opposites. One telling us go down with your knees first, the other one telling us go down with your hands first. So how do we understand this issue now? The Shaykh says, when the Prophet said, do not go down into sujood like a camel goes down when it sits down. Do not go down like a camel goes down. Meaning, this is one explanation of the hadith. We're going to get to the other explanation in a minute. One explanation of the hadith is, أي على صفة بروك البعير. Don't go down in the way that a camel goes down. What is the way that a camel goes down? When you see a camel standing up, it wants to sit down. How does it go down? The front legs bend. His head, body, front leg goes down. Then he brings the back down. That's how the camel sits down. A camel doesn't sit down by sitting on his back first and then bringing his front legs down. A camel, if you see it standing up, when it sits down, it bends its front legs first down to the ground, puts them down, and the back legs are still standing up. Once the front ones are down, then it brings the back ones down. You can all go and check that afterwards. That's how the camel goes down. That's the way a camel goes down. So when the hadith says, do not go down like a camel goes down, if you were copying the way a camel goes down, that would mean you go down first with your hands, because the camel goes down front first. Hence, to not go down how a camel goes down, you need to go down back first, which is knees touching, then you bring your upper body down. Because the camel brings its upper body down first. So if you're not going to go down like a camel goes down, you better bring the lower, backer part of your body down first, which is your knees, then bring your front body down. So now you are not going down like a camel goes down. Seems clear enough? Do not go down like a camel goes down, the hadith says. Camel goes down front first. Therefore you go down back first, knees first, and then your hands and the front part of your body. So you're not going down how a camel goes down. That's one explanation, seems very clear, no problem. Only issue is, the last part of this hadith said, do not go down like a camel goes down, go down with your hands first, it said. 
How can that be? It's saying, don't go down like a camel goes down. Go down with your hands first. But if you go down with your hands first, you're going down how a camel goes down. So then what could be the meaning of the hadith? Some other scholars, they explained in a different way. The camel, like we have now our knees there, our hands here. A camel, its knees are where? The front legs are its knees. They are knees for the camel. They are known as its knees. Bends down on its knees. The knees of a camel are in its front legs. The knees of a camel are in its front legs. Bends down on its knees. So when you think about where the knees of a camel are, they are at the front. So the camel goes down on its knees. The knees of the camel are at the front. They are the knees. It goes down on its knees. Therefore, in order for you to avoid going down like the camel, you must avoid going down on your knees and go down on your hands. And that is something known. A camel, ask any of the shepherds and the people who are uh, known and experienced with camels, the knees of a camel are in its front legs. That is basic biology of a camel. The knees of the camel are in its front legs. It bends down with those knees to get down. So now when the hadith says, don't go down like a camel goes down, a camel goes down how? On its knees. Therefore you should go down, not on your knees, but on your hands. And that's why the hadith says, don't go down like a camel goes down, go down on your hands. So now which explanation is sounding better so far? Now the second one sounds better all of a sudden. This is how fiqh works. You hear one explanation, you think that's it. That's it, so easy, so clear. Don't go down how a camel goes down. How does a camel go down? Front first. So you go down back first, finished. Then you hear the second explanation. Now all of a sudden you think actually this one sounds even better than the first one. So you see the two explanations. One is saying the hadith where it says don't go down like a camel goes down, meaning don't go down in the manner that the camel goes down, in the way that the camel goes down. Forget about where the knees are and where they aren't. This first opinion says forget about the knee thing. Just don't go down how a camel goes down. How does a camel go down? Front first or back first? Front first. So, to avoid going down like a camel, don't go down front first, which is your hands. Go down back first, which is your knees. The second opinion, the scholar said, no, it's not about that. It's about getting very particular. The hadith says, don't go down like the camel goes down. The camel goes down on its knees. They are in the front of the camel. It goes down on its knees. So you have to avoid going down like a camel. Therefore, do not go down on your knees first. Go down on your hands. And the end of the hadith seems to back that up too. Because it says, don't go down like a camel goes down. Go down on your hands. So it's backing up that you go down on your hands. The first opinion, what are they going to do about the end of the hadith? The first opinion said, don't go down in the 
way a camel goes down. The way, the manner, the method a camel goes down is front first. So they are saying, go down on your knees. But the end of the hadith says, go on your hands. How are they going to explain that? Are they saying the words round? Possibly. So are they saying the hadith, the, the person got mixed up? Yes. When he was narrating the hadith? Absolutely. Absolutely. This can happen. Sometimes in some hadith, words can be flipped by accident. It does happen in some hadith now and again. Accidentally, the words could be flipped around by accident. So what they say is, in this hadith, that's what must have happened. One of the narrators of the hadith, when he was narrating it, you know how it happens, sometimes you say things the wrong way around, you don't realize. They say maybe the narrator, one of them who was narrating it, without realizing, just accidentally said it the wrong way. He meant to say, don't go down like the camel goes down, go down on your knees first. But accidentally, just how words swap around in your head sometimes, he said go down on your hands first, accidentally. So they say, and what's their proof? How can you say that? Because you can't just say, a hadith is flipped by accident. You've got to have some proof. What's the proof they, they might be able to use to say, this hadith has been flipped by accident? They would use that first hadith we mentioned, where it said, I saw the Prophet ﷺ go down on his knees. They'll say, look, one of the companions saw the Prophet ﷺ going down on his knees. So in this one now, this companion, he must have just accidentally swapped it by accident. He meant to say, don't go down like a camel goes down, don't go, uh, go down, go down on your knees. By accident, he just said, go down on your hands. That's possible. It can happen. It can happen. In some hadith, you might get something swapped around by accident. It occasionally happens. So in the books of hadith, when you learn about the sciences of hadith, they do have chapters talking about this topic. The qalb, something which is maqloob, something which has accidentally been swapped by one of the narrators. It can happen. So some of the scholars, they say that's what's happened here. They say the hadith therefore means you go down. You don't go down how a camel goes down. Camel goes down from first. So you go down on your knees. The end of the hadith though says go down on your hands. They say that's just accidentally mixed up. The narrator meant to say go down on your knees first. What's the proof? The other hadith where the other companions saw the Prophet ﷺ go down on his knees first. So now which one's become stronger all of a sudden again? Back to the first one again now. Now the first opinion is stronger again. Go down on your knees first. It's something you cannot come to a definite conclusion on. It's one of those differences of opinion. You're not going to come to a definitive conclusion. Nobody can say that one is right. If you do the other one, you're a mubtadi' bid'ah. You can't say it. Because look, you can see, it's complicated. It could be this, it could be that. This explanation could be correct, that explanation could be correct. This is why in fiqh, in fiqh only, not in aqidah, not in other things, only in these types of issues in fiqh, do you do it like this or do you do it like that, you can have some leeway. Like we just discussed, after ruku, hands here or hands here, there is some leeway. If somebody does this, you can't say, you can't. There's leeway in it because the evidences are 
It's possible. That could be right. That could be right. Here again, it's the same thing. It's not possible to say which one is absolutely right. Natural way of going down. What's the natural way of going down? Half the people here are going to say knees. Half the people are going to say hands. So the evidences indicate this and they indicate that. They indicate both. Depending on how you understand the explanation. So that's why some scholars like Sheikh Al-Taymeen, they came to the conclusion that it's knees first. Others came to the conclusion, no, it's about the knees of the camel. The knees of the camel are at the front. So don't go down on your knees. You go down on your hands. So difference of opinion about that, whether you go on your knees first or you go on your hands first. Shaykh al-Athaymin mentions that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullahu ta'ala also took the opinion that it is knees first. Also took the opinion that it is knees first. One issue comes up here now then. So we know there's a difference of opinion. Could be hands first, could be knees first. Let's say somebody takes the opinion it is hands first. But because of a medical reason, they can't bend all the way down to touch their hands down. They bend their body a bit, but they need to get onto their knees and then bring the rest of their body down. Allowed or not? Then it's allowed, of course. If you have a medical condition and you can't get yourself all the way down to touch your hands first, even if you're upon the opinion of the hands first, you can go with your knees first. Because that is a medical issue now, that's the best you can do. So now, we know how you go down. Two opinions, both of them have evidences. Not possible to come to a conclusion definitively. So now you're in sujood. You've gone down and you are in sujood. In sujood, we've said, there are seven body parts. There are seven body parts that you have to prostrate upon. And they are mentioned in a hadith, the Prophet ﷺ said, Umirtu anasjuda ala sab'ati a'zam. I have been commanded to, ba- to prostrate on seven body parts. The two feet, the two knees, the two hands, and the head, uh, or the uh, forehead, and the top of the nose. The forehead and the top of the nose. That is considered as one body part. If a person prostrates, and one of those seven body parts does not touch the ground, his raka'ah becomes invalid. Imagine you go down into sujood. As you go down into sujood, as soon as you go down, you got to scratch on one of your heels. So you use one foot to scratch the top of your heel of the other foot. And you keep doing it all the way in the prostration. And then you come out of prostration, and that's when the other foot finally touches down again. It never touched down whilst you were in Prostration, invalid. You have to touch those seven body parts onto the ground in prostration. You could momentarily remove it, 
Imagine you're in prostration, the seven body parts are touching. In prostration, you get a scratch or something, you move your foot and you scratch and you put it back. That's okay. It's there. It just temporarily moved, but it's back. But if it never gets there in the first place, one of the body parts never touched down in the first place, then the prostration is invalid. Unless, of course, it is for some need, some medical issue. Could be some medical issue, you can't bend one of your body parts in a certain way, you can't put pressure on it, something. That's excused, of course. But normally speaking, those seven body parts must touch the ground. Now then, when those seven body parts are touching the ground, where do the hands go? On the ground where? In front of you, at the side of you, behind you, whereabouts? Side of your ears. So the Sheikh says they should be at the side of your forehead and nose, which is basically the ears. Side of the ears, forehead and nose in line there. That's where they should be. Not out there in the front, not back here anywhere. They should be put down in between. Your head should be in between your two hands. That's the alignment alignment of the hands. They should be put down with your forehead and nose and ears in line with them. That is mentioned in Sahih Muslim. That is mentioned in Sahih Muslim. فَلَمَّا سَجَدَ سَجَدَ بَيْنَ كَفَيْهِ When the Prophet ﷺ prostrated, he prostrated between his hands. Meaning his head was between his hands. So that's where they go. Or the alternative is in line with faces the same almost. Shoulders. Shoulders. You can put them down in line with your shoulders. That is possible too. That is mentioned in a hadith also. That the Prophet ﷺ, he put his hands in line with his shoulders. That is possible too. So therefore there are two possible positions for the hands. Either in line with your forehead and eyes, or a bit lower down in line with your shoulders. That's where they are placed. Fingers should be forward facing towards the Qibla. Not that you put your hands down sideways like that, or inwards to yourself. Forward facing towards the Qibla with the fingers. Forward facing towards the Qibla with your fingers. Then also the actual position of the prostration, very similar to what we said in the Ruku'ah. Your back and your neck should be Straight, not curved in and not curved, bent like that as many people do. Don't bend yourselves over. Flat. Flat back, in line with your neck going down, in an angle going down. That's where it should be. Also, your arms, your hands are at the side of your head or at the side of your shoulders, but whereabouts? Right next to the eyes and right next to the shoulders or body width? So that's just at the outside of the shoulders. Yeah. It needs to be a bit more than that. If they're just outside your shoulders, it means your arms are going to be too tight. So it's supposed to be with a bit of a gap. In the jama'ah, you can't do anything. It's going to be like this. 
When you're in the row, you can't stretch out. You're not going to be able to. But when you're praying otherwise, you have the opportunity to do it. Then you're supposed to put your arms out. Not stuck to your side. Your arms are not supposed to be stuck to your side in sujood. Because there's a hadith, it's going to come up here now. إِذَا سَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلَا يَفْتَرِشْ كَمَا يَفْتَرِشُ الْكَلْبِ أو فَلَا يَفْتَرِشْ يَدَيْهِ إِفْتِرَاشُ الْكَلْبِ وَلْيَضُمَّ فَخِذَيْهِ When you prostrate, do not put your hands down like a dog does. How does a dog put its hands down? When a dog is sitting down, the arms are there and next to it. You've seen how a dog sits. Arms out into its body next to it. Do not go into prostration like that. So you don't have your arms squashed. You have them out. A gap underneath. Gap underneath your arms. So that is what you're supposed to do there. When you're in, pro- when you're in jama'ah, you can't. But when you're by yourself and you have a chance, then when you're prostrating, there's a gap. You have a, a physical space underneath. Almost a, like a, an angle. It can be like an angle. And you have a physical space where you can be gone underneath. Physical space, you can go underneath it. Because in another narration it says, وَرْفَعْ مِرْفَقَيْكَ Raise up your elbows. So the elbows aren't in prostration. You're not supposed to be touching your elbows down like that. That is wrong. Elbows are not supposed to be down on the ground. Hands on the ground, elbows up. That's what the hadith says. Raise up your elbows. So normally in prostration, your elbows have to be raised up. In the jama'ah, of course, you're going to be stuck. You can't do anything. By yourself though, raised up like this. So there's a gap underneath. Not squashed next to you. Not flat on the ground. Raised up, only your hands flat on the ground. That is how you do it normally. And the hadith also says, regarding your thighs. What's the position of your thighs? And your feet. Uh So when you're in prostration, your thighs, the top of your thighs, should not be touching your stomach. Meaning you shouldn't be squashed up. If you're squashed up together, you're going to end up making your stomach touch the top of your thighs in the prostration position. You should be a little bit more outstretched than that, so that the thighs and the stomach have an angle and there's a gap. The thighs are not touching your stomach. You can imagine that how it would be. You'd have to take your legs and your thighs back a bit, away from your stomach to leave that gap, and your thighs are not tucked into your stomach. You do not tuck in your thighs and your legs at the back right into your body. Take them out a little bit. Give space under your body too in the prostration. And space between the thighs and the stomach. The actual thighs, are they supposed to be out with a gap, joined together? How? So, should you join the feet or not? Should be space. So, like the feet are like this. A gap in between, so there'll be a gap in the legs and everything. Mm. And the thighs? The feet are supposed to be joined. When you're in prostration, join the feet. Next to each other. You shouldn't put your feet out like this. This is a common thing. Everybody out there. 
feet out like that when they're in prostration. The gap in between. The feet should be joined together when you're in the prostration at the back. The feet should be joined, which means your up to your knees is practically going to be joined as well. Practically, there's not going to be much of a gap. It's all going to be very close and your feet are going to be joined at the bottom. What's the proof that the feet are joined at the bottom? There are evidences. One of them is the hadith in Sahih Muslim. There's a hadith in Sahih Muslim that proves when the Prophet ﷺ used to prostrate, he would join his feet. Hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha. She says, فَقَدْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم لَيْلَةً مِنَ الْفِرَاشِ فَالْتَمَسْتُهُ She says, one night, like in the middle of the night, she noticed, maybe woke up or something, and noticed the Prophet ﷺ wasn't there. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't there at night. He wasn't asleep on, uh, on the bed, wherever. He wasn't there. So she says, I began to look around. Where's he gone? What's happened? So she says, I began to look for him. And this was pitch black in those days. No electricity, nothing. Pitch black, looking around now. Where's he gone? What's happened? And the house of Aisha anha was joined next to the masjid. It was like that. Just out there is the house of the Aisha. And this is the mosque. Joined. You could put your hand through into the house, at the window, into the house of Aisha, and this is the mosque, joined. So she says, I was looking around for the Prophet She says, I was looking around, looking around, and then all of a sudden, in the dark, she says, my hand fell onto his feet. He was prostrating, he was praying, like right there at the mosque bit or something. <clears throat> prostrating, and she says, my hand fell onto his feet, onto both feet. How could she have been looking and her hand touched both feet? They had to be together. Had to be together. If you're prostrating and you're like this with a gap in between, and you're looking around, you're only going to touch one foot. Aisha says, my hand fell on both of his feet together. They must have been joined. Clear proof? They had to be joined. It's impossible to touch both feet if they are not joined. If there's a gap... You have to have a very, very big hand to be able to get across. Impossible. You're only going to be able to touch both if they are joined. So that is a proof that the uh, feet are joined when you are in the prostration. Which way should the toes be facing then? Towards the Qibla. Facing the toes, facing towards the Qibla. Feet joined, toes towards the Qibla. Thighs away from the stomach. That doesn't mean though, that you stretch yourself out. Doesn't mean you stretch yourself out miles. So far, that you're about to collapse forward. So far, that if somebody looks, they think you're lying down flat in your face. You don't stretch yourself like that. The Sheikh, he mentioned it. Some people, they stretch themselves so far, that it's like you're almost going to collapse. You're going to fall down flat. So far stretch in the, in the sujood. Not that far. You just stretch a little bit so that your stomach isn't touching your thighs and there is good gap and there is gap on the arms, everything nice and spaced. But not long and stretched, you're going to fall down. That is the positioning of the sujood.
There is an opinion of some of the scholars that you're supposed to leave a hand span of gap between the feet. But that opinion doesn't have any proof. It doesn't have a hadith that the Prophet did it. It's not an established opinion. The proof opinion is about joining the feet together. There is no real proper proof that you leave a gap of a hand span between the feet, etc. So joining is what should be done there. What about the knees then? So the feet are joined as you're going up now to the knee section. Should they be joined too or not? There is nothing mentioned in the sunnah about that. So you just leave them on the natural kind of position where they fall. Wherever you are naturally stable in the sujood position, if they're slightly apart, and normally they're going to be just slightly apart, that's okay. Where you are natural in the position. That's what's mentioned on the prostration position. Something else the Sheikh mentions here. When you sometimes pray, like you might end up praying here or somewhere where it's not, I mean the mosque normally always hoovered and clean. But sometimes if you're somewhere else here or maybe outside in the park in the field or something, service station, you have to stop and pray out on the concrete car park, things happen. When you're praying like that, it's better to pray on the ground direct. It is better to pray on the ground direct. And when you pray on the... Imagine like on the services now. You stop and you have to pray outside there in the car park. What's going to happen when you go into sujood? Dust and those tiny tarmac things. You're going to get those tiny things on your, on your face everywhere. There's a narration. It says, you're not supposed to brush it off in the prayer. You're not supposed to mess about doing this. You're not supposed to. Leave it. There's a narration it mentions it. Leave it. When you finish, then do what you want and clean yourself up and everything else. But people now, if they end up in that service or situation, as soon as you come out, this, clean your knees quickly, clean your hands quickly. You're not supposed to do that. In the middle of the prayer, doing this and this and your knees and everything, it's not right. You're praying out there, it's not going to do anything to you. No diseases there. You're not going to die. It's okay. So you allow that, it's not a problem. You finish your prayer, get rid of the little bit of dust and these things. Here, mashallah, the people have got so used to things and the way everybody lives, a tiny speck here and that's it. Quickly, quickly, otherwise you've had it. No problem. A little bit of that tarmac, these things. Leave it, when you finish the prayer, then you get rid of it. And it mentions it in some narrations. Uh, in one hadith it says, فِي some people before they go into prostration they can see and they might do this and then they go into prostration hadith says if you really have to do that only once don't every time you come next time okay this again then prostration next prostration this again no once if you have to maybe you know you see some, maybe you see a piece of glass or something could be once if you have to do it do it then the rest of the prayer just pray so you're not supposed to be messing about with things in the prayer we're going to get to this afterwards. Are you allowed to move in the prayer? You've got the prayer movements. Are you allowed to do other movements that are not part of the prayer? And does it break your prayer or not? We're going to get to that later on. So that is regarding the prostration up to there. Mm. What do you say in the prostration then? 
Subhana Rabbi al-A'la. May Allah be glorified free of any type of imperfection, the most high. The Shaykh says, look at how the Sunnah told us to worship Allah. You are now the most low. That's the lowest you can get your body, right down there with your head on the ground. You've got your most respected part of your body, which is your face, down on the ground. Your face is your most honorable part of your body, honor. If somebody spits on your foot, that's bad. Somebody spat in your face, now there'll be problems. The face is the most honor and respect. You take your face, the part of your body with the most respect, and you put it down into the ground for the sake of Allah. When you put yourself right down into the ground, into the dust, into the soil, into the mud, the Prophet's mosque used to have a thatched roof. When it rained, the water would come through and it become muddy in the floor. They used to pray, they used to come out of sujood, mud in their faces. So when you pray, you take the most respected part of your body down into the ground for the sake of Allah. The ground where people have been walking. Their cars, wheels driving over it, walking on it, shoes over it. You put your face down into that for the sake of Allah. To show your modesty and your humility before Allah. And then on top of all that you say, But my Lord is... Subhana Rabbi al-A'la. He is the most high. You put yourself the most low, and then you say, my Lord though, he is the most high. So the Shaykh said, look at this, how the Sunnah told us to worship Allah. So we recognize how small and weak we are as the creation of Allah. You lower yourself to the ground, and then you say, Allah is the most high though. So that is what you say in that prostration, Subhana Rabbi al-A'la. That is mentioned. And there are some other du'as as well. There are some other du'as you can recite. They are mentioned in the sunnah. It is possible to do them. One thing that you can't do though is recitation of the Qur'an. It is impermissible to start reciting Qur'an. What about Rabbana atina fid dunya hasanatan wa fil akhirati hasanatan wa qina adhab al-nar? Something like that? Allowed or not? Is it Quran or not? It's Quran. Allowed or not? No. So Quran isn't allowed. That is Quran. But it's a dua. If you pick an ayah of the Quran which is a dua, you can do that. But you can't just start reciting random Qur'an. If it's an ayah of the Qur'an which is actually a dua, you can pick it because now you're reading it for the sake of it being a dua. You're not reading it for the sake of it being the Qur'an. You're reading it for the sake of it being a dua. That's allowed. But if you just start reading Qur'an for the sake of reading Qur'an, not allowed. But for the sake of a dua, you could do it. What about other dua? We're going to get to it in a minute. Sujood is one of the best times to make dua. Because in the hadith it says, أَقْرَبُ مَا يَكُونُ الْعَبْدُ إِلَىٰ رَبِّهِ وَهُوَ سَاجِدٌ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَهُوَ سَاجِدٌ The closest a person is to Allah is when you are in prostration. So you should make dua then. Are you allowed to make dua in other than Arabic language? In prostration, in prayer, in the fard. Yes? So you can talk in English in the prayer? You can talk in English in the prayer? 
If we're talking Urdu in the prayer. Mm. You can talk in Yorkshire in the prayer. Mm-hmm. So, the scholars they say, you know in Saudi Arabia they have those boxes, those booths, and there's people inside giving books out. Free dawah books, different languages. Those round ones. And there's a window. And the people are in there and they give out free books to people. Free dawah books, these kind of books. Different languages, lots of different languages. You go to them and you say to them, English for example. They'll find the English free books and they'll just give you a copy. You go to them and say Somali, they find the Somali one. Urdu, they find the Urdu one. Different languages, different dawah books they have. About prayer, about aqidah, they just give them out in the round circle things. So people go, they say English, English, Urdu, Urdu. People going like that. One man went and he said, Egyptian. Egyptian. The Arabs, they understand this joke, uh, this one better. He said, Egyptian. Egyptian is of course Arabic. But he said Egyptian. And they find it funny because they see that Egyptian is a different type of dialect altogether, a different language. But it's Arabic. It's Arabic. But anyway. Here then in the prostration, is it allowed? The scholars, they say, out of necessity it is allowed. You should first try to learn du'as in Arabic. Learn different du'as, lots of du'as you can read. If you got something really specific about your situation, something you need to make du'a about, you're allowed to do it in another language. You can use your other language and you can ask for that thing in the, in the prayer, in the prostration, any prayer. Nafal, fard, it's allowed. If you need to do it and you don't know the other language, you don't know Arabic, you can't say it in Arabic. So that's a time when you should use it to make dua. Say Subhana Rabbi al-A'la, do all of those. Then afterwards do some dua in the prostration. It's one of the best times to make the dua as well. That's where we'll stop today then. And next time we'll start with when you come out of the prostration, then you have the small sitting. And then you go into the next prostration. That's the part we'll begin with from next time. A part most people don't even know exists. Most people don't even know that part exists. Sujood, sujood. Straight away. No sitting in between. What are you talking about sitting? We have to go. So that part, we talk about it. It's very important. If you miss this part, again, big problems in your prayer. So inshallah ta'ala, that's going to be in two weeks time. Next week is cancelled. Next week there won't be a class here. It's going to be in two weeks time now. Next week is the conference in Birmingham. In Birmingham in a small heath. There's a conference there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Could be, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 people there. Everybody's going to be there. So that conference, everyone inshallah go there. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days, however many days you can go. You can get all the dates, the addresses and everything from the brothers. So next week this will be cancelled. In two weeks' time we'll come back, same time roughly, and we'll carry on, insha'Allah. Any questions? You know, about the du'a when you said that, what do you mean by that? Like, is it No, it doesn't have to be Allahumma. There could be other types of du'as that don't begin with Allahumma. With the one we mentioned just now. Rabbana atina fi dunya. Does it begin with Allahumma? It doesn't have to be. Also the intention as well. The intention has to be, you're reading it as a dua. So you got to know what it means. 
Don't just read something you've heard and you don't even know what it means. You're reading it because it's a dua, so obviously you need to know what it means. So you could read ayat of the Quran which are duas and you know what they mean and you want to make that dua. You can read it for the sake of dua. Absolutely, it is permissible to pray with shoes on. Hadith, we didn't do it yet. We did it, we did it. The hadith, the Prophet ﷺ was praying with his shoes on. And then Jibreel came in the middle of the prayer and he took them off. So then the companions, they said, why did you take them off? Oh no, the companions took them all off as well. And the Prophet ﷺ said to them, why did you take your shoes off? He said, because we saw you taking your shoes off in the middle of the prayer. He said, that's because Jibreel came and told me there was some najis on my shoes. If there wasn't any najis, he would have just carried on praying with his shoes on all the time. He even said it, because the Jews and the Christians, they used to take their shoes off all the time. So to oppose that as well. It's permissible to pray with the shoes on. Nothing wrong with that. It is only culture. Culture people say, Audhu Billah. Praying with your shoes on, Astaghfirullah. Nothing wrong. Your shoes are clean. Just check them. The hadith says, if you're going to pray with your shoes on first, make sure you check them. Check them. If they're clean, there's no nudges, nothing. You can pray with them on. No, clean, not clean. It's about nudges. You can have mud on them. You can walk through a field if they're full of mud, you can pray with them on. Because that is a nudges. Nudges and unclean are two different things. Nudges and unclean are two different You could roll around in a field, get mud all over yourself, your prayer would be valid. You wouldn't pray like that, but your prayer would be valid if you did. But the nudges is the problem. You could be completely clean, and you get a bit of urine on you, now it's a problem. But you get mud all over you, mud is pure. If you get mud on you, it's not nudges, you don't have to go do a ghusl. So it's about the nudges. Dirty doesn't matter, your clothes could be dirty. You shouldn't pray with dirty clothes on. You should beautify yourself when you pray. Put the nice clothes on when you go to the mosque and clean and make yourself beautiful when you pray. And for the women, of course, they have to be covered. But uh, uh, beautiful, we're talking about for the men, you wear clean clothes, etc. when you go to the mosque. But that doesn't mean that dirt invalidate your prayer. If you had a dirty felva and you haven't washed it for two weeks, it's dirty but there's no nudges on it, you can wear it and your prayer is valid. So there's a difference between nudges and impure. Nudges and dirty. Yeah, folding your clothes so you're not supposed to pray with your clothes rolled up. You're not supposed to pray with your clothes rolled up. But the pants, shirts, everything. You should unroll it. Leave everything unrolled. So don't pray with your clothes rolled up. There's a hadith, yes. No, the, the prayer is valid. Prayer is okay. That doesn't break your prayer. But there's a hadith. You should unroll your clothes and things and you shouldn't have them rolled up in the prayer. So even if you see somebody rolled up, are you supposed to tell them not to... Well, if they're in the middle of the prayer, nothing. But normally you're supposed to tell them... Outside of the prayer, advise them. Say, you know, you should open this before you start praying. The problem is the pants, people, they don't wear short clothes. They do haram. It is haram for men to wear clothes below their ankles anytime. Haram. But people do it, and then they roll it up and they pray. So that's a problem. You're supposed to have pants that don't need to be rolled up. They need to be above your ankles to begin with. Hmm. But if you're using a chair to root something the miles, are you supposed to stand up when you're in the Yeah, so if you need to sit on a chair, it all depends on your capability. So let's say, for example, you've got a problem in uh, bending your knee or putting pressure on your knee. 
you got a problem in putting pressure on your knee or, 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 or your back. Let's see your back. That's an easier example. Your back. You got a problem with your back. So you can't bend your back. So you can't do the rokuah properly. You can't go down into sujood on the floor, put pressure on your knees and your back. You can't do these things. Just standing up, you got no problem. You can stand. But it's just that when you need to start bending and doing those things, you can't do. Standing, you haven't got a problem with. So when the prayer starts, you should start standing up. You got no problem with that. When they're going to rokuah, you can't bend yourself that much. You got a problem in your back. Then you can sit down in the chair and do that one. When they go down into sujood, you can't do it. Pressure, back, everything. Then you can sit on the chair and do the sujood. When they come and stand up again, have you got a problem in standing up? Then get up and stand up. You only do the chair in the parts you can't do. Some people think if I can't do prostration, the whole prayer, let me do it in the chair. Wrong. If you can stand, stand. If it's only the bending and the prostration you can't do, stand for the rest of it. And in the ruku and the prostration part, they will go down, you just sit down and do it on the chair because you can't bend down properly. The rest of it, you do what you can do standing up then. Hmm. So you know for the uh, sujood, you move your hands forward? Yeah, for the ruku, it's a bit of a bend. For the sujood, it's a bit more of a bend. Take your hands forward. Uh, it doesn't have to go past your knees how people do. It doesn't have to be. But yeah, and you just you make your sujood a bit longer, a bit more than your ruku. That's all. Keep your hands over the knee. Around about the knee, yeah. Hmm. I mean, if you're standing No, you should line up. You should line up on the standing position as much as you can. It's going to be a problem behind as well, so you have to adjust it to the, as much as you can. Uh, the person behind as well needs the space, so you got to do what you can to try and line up to the best of your ability with the rope. When they join up with Isha? Joining Maghrib with Isha, some of the scholars, they allow it. Some scholars allow joining Maghrib and Isha in these summer times, when Isha is so late, 11, 11.30, Fajr, 3 o'clock in the morning, very difficult. So some scholars allow joining Isha with Maghrib. Some. Many of them don't allow it in the first place. The permanent committee, the major scholars' permanent committee, none of them allow it. Sheikh Ahmed Najmi, Sheikh Zaid, Sheikh uh, Bin Baz, none of them allow this joining. But some scholars allow it. If they allow it and you do it, then the sunnahs for Maghrib, you're going to do them after the Isha. Because you can't pray Maghrib and then start doing your sunnah and then say we're combining Isha afterwards. Combining means do it together. So do it together and you can do those sunnahs afterwards then. Hmm. That's what some of the scholars mentioned if you combine. When you make a Not necessarily. If you know them and you should try and learn them, then say them. If you don't know any others, all you know is Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, do that, and then you can go into your dua. Combining is combining. It's not really, you don't pray your Maghrib and then do Sunnahs and then pray Isha after that. If you're combining, you're combining. But that's, you know, upon the opinion of some of the scholars that allow it, that allow the combining. Now, when you're sitting down, something like you cross your legs. Oh, we're going to get to that afterwards.
the cross leg thing, yeah. Closing your eyes. When you pray, should you close your eyes or not? A lot of people they do get more focused, close your eyes and pray. Is it okay or not? No? Can't close your eyes in the prayer? Any time in the prayer, so do it any other time. Can you close your eyes when you pray? The default is you're not supposed to close your eyes in the prayer. That is not the sunnah. Only close your eyes in the prayer if there's a need. Like you got a really bad headache or something, imagine. And the light's really bugging you, you got a really bad headache. You need to close your eyes to pray to get some calm. Okay, you can do it. Or, for example, some mosques, and this is a mistake in the mosques, the front of the mosque is decorated, all types of things. I've been to some, I've seen some, they got, you know, the Christmas tinsel. I've seen it, I've seen my own eyes, Christmas tinsel on the walls and things. So you got all these decorations on, all these lights and everything, and it's really bugging you. You can't concentrate, all this stuff coming in your face. Then you can close your eyes because of the distraction. But normally, normally, you don't close your eyes. You can't say, I get more focus. Look down where you're going to prostrate, just keep looking there, that's focus. The normal ruling is man, men and women, the prayer is the same. That's the normal ruling. People say no women have to do this and that. Normally, the rulings of the men and the women prayer is the same. You can, but it's better to pray on the ground. If there's a need, if there's a need, you can. There's, uh, the ground, for example, it's very jagged or something. Uh, it's going to hurt your foot. Something, you can do it if there's a need. If, the, if there's a need. Like there's a hadith. One time the companions were praying outside and it was duhr and it was boiling hot. It was so hot that they couldn't touch their heads onto the ground. When they prostrated, they put their head on the ground, their head burns. It was boiling hot. So then they used like their thobe or the other side of their garment, and they put a bit down, like, like you know how they wear sometimes the big uh, cloth, some people put some of it down, and then they can put their head on top of that. If there's a reason, do it. But by default, the shaykh says it's better you pray on the ground. Hmm. Boys, small children, if they're going to stand in the road, they have to make wudu first. This is a big problem. People, they bring their kids, they don't even have wudu. You can't put your kids in the rows if they haven't got wudu. If you want to teach your kids to pray, no problem. Tell them to make wudu first before you bring them to the mosque. They have to have wudu, then you can put them next to you in the line. And they can practice in the jama'ah praying everything. If they haven't got wudu, you can't put them in the line. So if they got wudu, put them in the line. But it's better the boys line up with the, the men. For a young boy, the prayer isn't obligatory anyway. So, uh, for the, if a boy is practicing like that, he can practice. But it's better a boy practices with his father. Hmm. Like a young, it doesn't matter. They practice and can do so. For the young, they can practice, they can do so. But it's better for the boys to practice with their fathers and the girls to practice with their mothers. Yeah, that's uh, the Prophet used to do that with his grandchildren as well, Hassan Hussein. In the prayer, he was praying and they were playing around, so he would pick them up. You can, you know, if you're praying, for example, and your your young child is with you messing about, you can grab him, grab him and carry on praying. That's a lot. You know, in the prayer, can, uh, I've heard uh, uh, on the deep side, can, uh, 
We're going to get to that, in fact, later on. If you get distracted in the prayer too much, all these thoughts keep coming to you about different things, and you're trying to focus, and thoughts keep coming, then you can spittle, not spit, just spittle. Like dry, yeah, dry, yeah, that's it, that's it, yeah. Like the dry spit to the left. A'udhu billahi minash rajim The dry spit to the left. We're going to get to that. But in the jama'ah, it's advisable to try and avoid that. If especially you know it's going to cause problems. In that case, just say, A'udhu billahi minash rajim that's it. If, you, if you're praying with people like here now, if we were praying in the line, everybody knows now. So you could do it because you know everybody knows what you're doing. The person will recognize what you're doing. You've got some whispers and you're just spitting a dry spit. That's okay. But people who don't know, some uncle or somebody doesn't know you do it afterwards, you're going to have problems. Big problems. So you have to be careful in the jama'ah. The shaykh says in the jama'ah, be careful. Hmm. We won't see you next week after that. Huh? Finish. After visit in the hospital. Alas, we'll conclude there then. Inshallah, next week conference in two weeks back here again. Inshallah.